fly of a bag and a compass looking for China. Looking for China, looking for China. Red suit and a atlas looking for China. Looking for China, looking for China. Through glass with a cutlass looking for China. Looking for China, looking for China. How much things where you run past looking for China. Looking for China, looking for China. I won't find it, I won't find it. You see the precious gem, they can't hide it. I won't find it, I won't find it. X marks this spot, they can't hide it. If I get to live in the continent, every day them I go come give me compliment. Celebrating it every day, you're wrong, the bend. wrong, the bend. Whoa! I find myself by a great wall looking for China. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the China in the Caribbean podcast. In today's episode, I'll be having a chat with Ruben Gonzalez Vicente. He is a lecturer at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and he studies China's relations in Latin America and the Caribbean. We chat about Chinese loan making in the Caribbean and the implications of the BRI for Caribbean development. Uh, this is a, a theme that we will return to time and again in later parts of the podcast, and I think this episode sets a great foundation for a future discussion. So, sit back and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ruben. So Ruben, before we actually dive into your really, really great papers about the Caribbean and Chinese loans, and particularly Jamaica, could you give some background on to why Jamaica would want to enter into these special type of loan repayment deals with China? I think a lot of people outside the Caribbean don't actually know about Jamaica's economy and the constraints it's under since it was entering these consistent IMF, International Monetary Fund IMF programs, and kind of what those programs even do and require for Jamaica. That I would think, in some sense, pushed it into the pushed it into the the direction of China. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I'm sure in a way people from the Caribbean will know much more about <laughs> how the IMF impacts on uh, on the developmental prospects of of a country. Um, in the IMF started being quite involved in the region after the 1980s crisis. A little bit earlier, but also in, in, in the early 1980s, uh, most prominently. And uh, this was what uh, people have come to call structural adjustment programs. So these were countries that had a, a problem uh, meeting all their payments and they needed cash. And the IMF was ready to provide, but requested a series of um, political economic transformations most of them in line with what we usually call neoliberalism. So neoliberal reforms, which included liberalization of trade and investment, uh, reducing governmental budgets to, to avoid going into debt, uh, uh, keeping inflation down, um, undoing some of the kind of social protections that you had for labor. Uh, and, uh, well, and, and basically, um, the expectation uh, was, of course, that countries within the region, uh, by undergoing all those reforms, could um, could start being more efficient, more profitable, and in that way, more likely to pay back their debts. 
But uh, the experience uh, through the 80s, particularly in Latin America, the Caribbean, and also in some African countries, was one uh, that was not that positive. And even the, the World Bank and the IMF have come to call that the lost decade of development. Uh, the type of conditionalities that uh, these entities now impose uh, uh, have transformed in some ways to try to, to adapt to the challenges that uh, they encounter in, in the beginning but are in essence um, still very market-oriented reforms uh, and very still uh, liberal from an economic perspective type of reforms. And uh, in cases like Jamaica, um, unfortunately, uh, at least until quite recently, uh, these reforms were not able to help uh, the country repay back the debts that it had acquired. And, and of course, uh, Jamaica still has considerable debts with the IMF and other entities. Okay, and one of the projects you discuss in one of your papers is the North-South Highway in Jamaica. And this was a very major project started in the 90s by a French company, but was then abandoned. And then decade decade later or so, the Jamaican government approached China to get some kind of deal to actually get it finished. So, could you kind of give us some more details about this project and why it's actually kind of a, a very interesting case study about, to kind of think about Chinese loans in the Caribbean? Yes, yeah, so uh, as you say, this was a highway that was planned and underway uh, long before China became inf- involved. There was uh, this French firm involved. Uh, I'm not going to pronounce the name because I'm probably going to butcher it. Uh, but uh, yeah, people people can check the, the article if they want. Uh, but uh, they encountered technical and financial problems towards the late 2000s, and and they abandoned the project. Uh, at that point, uh, 2009, uh, Jamaica's Prime Minister Bruce Goldin visited Beijing, uh, and uh, and the Minister of Transport and Works. Uh, was asked to negotiate with China a, a different kind of deal, a different kind of arrangement, so that the the highway could be finished and constructed. So uh, they got in touch with the China Harbor Engineering Company, uh, Tech, uh, and they reached an agreement uh, that involved the completion of the highway without necessarily uh, increasing Jamaica's uh, debt burden. And, and so what they did uh, was to offer... Uh, 1,200 acres of land in the north and south of the island, as well as the, the possibility to manage uh, the, the highway, uh, to, to run it commercially uh, for a number of years, for 50 years. Uh, and, and that in itself became the payment for uh, building that highway. And in that way, that was a different type of, of deal in, in the sense that uh, that they need, they didn't. Uh, Jamaica didn't uh, need to depend on 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 paying back a loan year by year in cash to China, but I'd rather uh, it was kind of an imaginative arrangement that allowed to to finalize uh, the construction of of the highway. Yeah, so this is a very key point because when a lot of articles from the New York Times and so on write about Jamaica's loans from China they don't actually parse out how the loans are actually going to be repaid. So in this case, it's a fairly large loan from China. Jamaica's actually repaid it by the transfer of 
you know, assets of land and toll-free and toll operations for the big highway. So this is this plays into something you refer to in your papers as a different logic of of accumulation that China does, where they have very different kinds of loan uh, repayment strategies that a lot of small companies actually appreciate. So in case Jamaica, because again the IMF complications, they don't actually increase their official debt burden by taking on this particular kind of Chinese loan. Yeah, so um, of, of course, uh, as we say to start with, that there are different types of loans from uh, Chinese policy banks, as they are usually called, to the Caribbean. And some of them do involve the repayment in uh, money, so they do uh, add to the debts of uh, countries in the region. But they also have the possibility to uh, to go for this kind of more imaginative type of arrangement. Uh, so say, for example, the IMF wouldn't wish to be paid back with uh, land because uh, uh, they probably couldn't find any use for it. Uh, but uh, China, or uh, let's say Chinese companies, uh, often come uh, as part of... A, uh, they come up with a broader framework uh, in which you have the government involved through negotiations through their diplomats. You have a policy bank that is the one uh, that gives uh, out the loan. And then you have a company also involved. So in this case, the company, Czech, uh, is the one that benefits from the payment in kind uh, from Jamaica. Sometimes uh, the arrangements uh, that they do can involve also a second company. I always like to use a case from Ghana, which is not in the region, but it's, it's very interesting because this was money to a loan to build a hydroelectric uh, dam, and uh, it was to be paid back uh, with uh, cocoa production. Now, the cocoa was not going to the same company that built the dam, because they also couldn't do anything with it, but it was going to a, uh, to a second company in China that, that, that was uh, in the business of trading with, with cocoa within the Chinese market and beyond. So uh, by coming in group, they are able to come with this kind of imaginative arrangements that allow countries that could possibly not pay back uh, if, if it was a conventional loan are still able to access a project uh, without, uh, again, without needing to increase their, uh, their nominal debt burden in, in their budget. You could still argue that it, there is a debt because you are uh, making a concession for either lands or for the future production of a commodity, which is not going to go to the coffers of the government or to the local industry. It's going to go uh, away. It's going to go to a Chinese company. But the case of Ghana is very interesting. I, I always like to use it because, um, yeah, uh, I always say that uh, the World Bank or the IMF wouldn't agree to be paid back in chocolate. They, they want U.S. dollars usually. Uh, but with China, you, you can, China or Chinese companies and banks sometimes can entertain more imaginative type of, of arrangements. Yeah, it, exactly. Uh, so one of the other big topics you discuss in your papers is the issue of Chinese labor. Um, you actually framed it in terms of, uh, the term was embodied transnational sovereignties. And of course, in the Caribbean now, the problem of Chinese labor is very topical in mostly different construction companies here in the region. So could you frame what the problem is uh, regarding Chinese labor uh, in terms of the, you know, the international movement of labor rights and so on? 
Yeah, so that goes back to the question that you asked me before about logics of accumulation that I didn't fully answer. Um, in a way, the the way in which the the IMF, for example, will work is they will promote these policies inviting liberalization, which uh, gives an opportunity for foreign capital to come uh, into well Jamaica or uh, any other Caribbean country once they are liberalized. And in that way, they, they are opening markets for any type of international investor that would like to invest uh, in the country. Now, with China, you don't have those um, broad type of agreements or conditionalities, but you have project-specific conditionalities. So what you end up having is, for example, in many, in many cases, um, uh, uh, exception, exemptions from paying taxes uh, locally on uh, whether it's on machinery that Chinese companies can bring uh, to build their projects or, or other type of taxes on equipment that may be necessary. Um, and they also usually negotiate the right to bring in Chinese labor that uh, will help them to complete the project at a lower cost than it would be completed if they were would be using uh, local labor. This, this for me was quite an interesting finding because uh, when I had studied uh, Chinese projects in Peru, for example, I didn't encounter uh, this type of situation so much. Also because it was a different sector. It was more the, the mining industry and there's a very highly qualified labor force uh, for mining in, in Peru. So Chinese companies decided to rely on that. Uh, the calculation for Chinese companies it's uh, that it's just more expensive to try to finish the projects with uh, labor with a labor force from the Caribbean. If they bring in their own labor, uh, these are workers that are in a way overexploited. We could say they they work longer hours. They are paid less than than uh, uh, local workers. And uh, usually they live in compounds next to the project, so um, they don't need to spend much money. They actually don't spend almost any money in the local economy, and that's how they can keep their um, consumption down. And, and in that way, the money they make is perhaps enough for them. Uh, and uh, But anyway, that, that, that gives them a competitive edge uh, when operating in the region. And, and this is something that... Um, constructors within Jamaica, for example, have complained usually about, uh, and when I interview people from the construction industry, it was quite interesting because they will tell me, um, yeah, the Chinese companies have an, an unfair advantage. They are able to access equipment that we need to pay taxes for, and they don't. Uh, they are able to pay less to their own workers, uh, and we don't have access to that cheap source of labor. And what they will argue is that if if all if, if there was a, a level playing field, that local companies could be just as competitive in uh, infrastructure construction as Chinese ones. That will need to be seen, of course, but that's their argument. Uh, what what was very interesting for me is is that some of these people, rather than asking for for those type of advantages to be taken away from Chinese companies. Some of these people were telling me, we want to also have access to cheap Chinese labor. We also want uh, to, to avoid paying taxes. Uh, and, uh, uh, but yeah, like you, you, you could really see how uh, once you're paying your workers less and once you don't need to pay taxes, you, you, you have an advantage. And uh, 
you are imposing a certain type of conditionalities, which are just project-based, but they are conditionalities. And it, you create a space, I call it a space of exception, where, for example, uh, Jamaican labor law doesn't apply. Uh, Chinese workers are also, of course, uh, they are not able to, to join free independent unions because you don't have those in China and they are not truly allowed to to form any new ones when they arrive to Caribbean countries. So uh, yeah, this all adds to the competitive edge of Chinese companies in the region. Oh, it's interesting how you said that in Jamaica, the construction companies, they want more advances for themselves and not necessarily to have China be disadvantaged. So that's pretty interesting. But, you know, this reminds me of the, in a different context, with the Philippines and the global uh, ship crews, you know, seamen, the ship crew staff, and so on. I think 25% of all... Um, uh, seamen in the world are Filipino, and they're managed by, you know, uh, department in the Philippines responsible for overseas seamen, and th- I guess that also counts as a kind of you know transnational embodied sovereignties as well. And I do wonder if we could get to a point where it's just you know, and that seems pretty normal. It gets to a point where yeah, it's just a normal thing that you know global construction is done by Chinese people. And Chinese companies. Uh, is there something inherently wrong with that, you know, potential normality in the future? Um, yes, well, uh, uh, there's first of all a major difference there, which is that um, uh, Filipino uh, um, workers on, under those conditions, they are, um, they are joining companies from many different countries, right? Whereas this kind of arrangements that we are seeing, uh, Chinese workers operate only work only for uh, Chinese companies. Yeah, I, I think um, there's two ways of looking at it. From the perspective of, of Caribbean governments, uh, the attractiveness of, uh, of this type of arrangement is that the projects are cheaper. Uh, so I've been told, uh, yes, of course, we could do this fully with local labor. The Chinese companies offer us this, uh, this possibility. Now, the costs will be much higher. So we prefer to come to an arrangement where, where it is, I don't know, 50-50, whatever it is. And, and in that sense, we create some local employment because the project is going to happen. And, uh, and at the same time, we don't uh, increase our, our debt burden uh, significantly. So from that perspective, it can be seen as potentially uh, positive because uh, you create the possibility of, of building new projects. We could debate later whether... Uh, different types of projects are necessary or not. That's a different type of debate. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's cheaper and, and, and you create some local jobs. Now, the, the, but before you the, go on, but like, for example, like in, let's say Barbados or any other like tiny Caribbean country. In Barbados, for example, the majority of the construction workers are actually already not Barbadian. They're from other countries like Guyana, St. Vincent, so on and so on. And it, it's a thing where if you want to build like a large... if you, if you want to do a large project in Barbados or St. Vincent, there's also no way to actually do it with local supply because it's too, too small. And also because it is this very mammoth project, local logistics companies will actually have the kind of worth of actually handle that kind of big project. So 
the the the, the whole thing of, uh, I say overseas labor, at least for a small place like Barbados or Saint Lucia or Saint Vincent, it, the, the actual downside to me seems very 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 small compared to somewhere like let's say Trinidad or Jamaica in Caribbean. Uh, well, I'm I'm definitely not arguing against migration. I'm a migrant myself. I work. I'm from Spain and I work in the Netherlands, and I've and all of my jobs have been outside my country. But uh, the problem here is that uh, the, the main problem, I would argue, is for the migrants themselves. They don't uh, they don't have the same rights than uh, local workers. They are not. Uh, sometimes they don't meet uh, the minimum. Uh, wages that uh, will be required within the country. They overwork, um, they, um, yeah, they, they live sometimes under rather uh, precarious conditions in, in the construction sites. Uh, so, so from this perspective, uh, in, in, in a way, the, the, the main overexploited class here or, uh, it, is the Chinese workers that, that come to these places. Of course, they are coming because they, they are being paid more than they will be in China. So they, they are seeing uh, uh, this as potentially beneficial for them. But uh, what I find problematic is that uh, the kind of rights that have been earned for workers within different countries in the Caribbean do not apply to a newly arriving underclass of workers. Uh, and this is in a region, of course, that has... Uh, a brutal history of uh, indebted laborers uh, and slavery, if we go, of course, uh, years back, and, and having a differentiated class of workers that don't have uh, the same rights as, as the rest of the population, I don't think it's, that's an entirely positive thing. Now, the second part of that is that um, this could potentially set as a standard in, in the sense of, of bringing, putting pressure into other c- companies trying to bring their own labor costs down. And, and in many, uh, I'm thinking now Jamaica, uh, the kind of uh, wages that construction workers receive, uh, they are agreed between the industry and the unions. They are not enshrined uh, in law. So uh, companies could potentially pay less to their construction workers and uh, and it's only because of their agreements that uh, that they are paying over the minimum wage now if there's pressure because other construction companies are getting all the projects and what you need to do is reduce labor costs it could probably have potentially have a, a spillover effect into the local industry as well so that could be seen as problematic so yeah it really depends the angle from uh, from which uh, you look at it yeah, I, I, I see. So one of the more, let's say, conceptual points that you bring up in some of your papers is how to think about how to think about the Belt and Road project and China in relation to the global south and the rest of the world. So, for example, so you do make the point that uh, Chinese. Um, SOEs, uh, state-owned enterprises, make use of you know complex offshore tax structures, and they're very very hyper profit-seeking uh, to the extent even where they would obfuscate risk just to go on with projects. But at the same time, according to some recent research by I believe Boston University groups, they showed that uh, China 
outspends even the World Bank on global developmental projects. So, what does this say or indicate about China? What's the BRI indicate about China, where at the same time it's doing, let's call it bare metal capitalism, while being the most developmental oriented uh, country that, that, that there is? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, complex too. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think the the, the uh, by, by the way, those uh, studies by Boston University are great. Kevin Gallagher and his team, I recommend them. Um, I think the main thing to to that one should understand about the BRI is that while it's uh, presented as a developmental campaign for the global south for connectivity. It is also very much a campaign to create market opportunities for Chinese companies. And the goal is that these market opportunities become profitable. Uh, the problem for China is that uh, there has been a crisis of overaccumulation in the Chinese construction sector for, for years now. Um, this is a sector that makes up around one-fourth of the Chinese economy. So if things are going bad there, uh, it's going to, to affect the whole economy. Uh, in, I think in 2015, uh, the OECD was already talking about uh, ineffective investments uh, in China within, within the real estate sector for uh, over 6 trillion U.S. dollars. And, and, and there's also a question of, of declining profitability in the sector. So in, in that sense, uh, the, the Belt and Road is trying to look uh, for opportunities for Chinese companies to build things around the world. Now, these things could, could have also a developmental goal in, in, in many settings if the, if the host countries are able to wisely choose where those loans and, and where those projects and where those construction firms are going to be operating. So what type of projects are... Uh, but uh, overall, for, for China, the, the goal is profit, profitability, both at the level of the banks that are giving the loans, which are uh, sometimes they have a concessionary component, but they are mostly commercial loans, and also at the level of, of the firms, which are also making a profit out of all these projects. And that is uh, tying this with our uh, conversation before. This is why they require this type of agreements where they have... Uh, uh, Chinese labor coming in who receives lower salaries. That's because they want to make sure the, the projects are profitable. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it, it very much ties in with China's own developmental trajectory uh, in the sense that the Belt and Road Initiative is an initiative to export overcapacity from China to create opportunities for construction firms so that they can remain profitable, so that they don't go bankrupt, and so that in that way, uh, the Chinese economy uh, also stays uh, in a more or less uh, healthy status. To me, for, for some time, it always seems like the BRI is this weird narrative that it presents a deceptive coherence to a, a relatively haphazardly planned portfolio of projects around the globe has been going on for some time. And it almost seems like it's, you know, it subsidizes the various economic feelings in China. But see, worse yet, at least the Caribbean, 
is that it also subsidizes poor policy planning in the in the region. See, Caribbean countries they differ from Africa in terms of the um, problems and you know the size and so on. So, Caribbean countries they they don't there's no lack of supply of money for the amount of money we will demand given we're so tiny. So, problems. Um, the problem is in the Caribbean is the countries are so, I would say, mismanaged in terms of public sector that they have to seek out Chinese money because they can't actually uh, organize themselves in a way to actually get the money from the U.S. or the EU. Uh, so have, having said this, uh, how, how do you see the future of the BRA globally, given that there was some recent research that said that the loans from China are actually you know, materially slowing down. Yeah, um, just to emphasize, uh, first of all, one thing that you were mentioning and that uh, I also kind of hinted at before, uh, that um, about how the BRI tells a lot about the Chinese economy itself. Uh, like one thing to realize, very obviously, is that the BRI is financing connectivity and infrastructure, which is that particular sector where China is having problems in terms of uh, declining profitability. Now, if the BRI went much beyond that, beyond being a campaign for uh, internationalizing firms that are struggling within the domestic market, then you will see firms from many different types of sectors, right? You will probably see firms uh, that uh, produce uh, microchips uh, moving to, to, uh, to Barbados or elsewhere, but those are firms that are doing relatively well, and those are firms that add lots of value locally, and there's not necessarily uh, a goal to internationalize those. But those that are going out are the construction firms, right? Uh, so so that, that already tells you a little bit. Now, uh, what is the future of the BRI? That, that's actually an excellent question, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm waiting a little bit uh, to see. Uh, we are at a stage where many countries are considering um, a domestic, large domestic investment uh, packages. Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, uh, how much China is going to do in terms of its own construction sector domestically. Uh, that was the strategy after the global financial crisis. Once uh, after the global financial crisis in 2007-8, uh, the, the economies of, of many uh, European uh, countries and North American countries went into decline. And uh, also, uh, consequently, the export markets for China were not uh, demanding as, as many uh, commodities, as many products as, as before. So a way to make sure the Chinese economy stayed alive there was lots of investment in infrastructures domestically, building new cities, building uh, highways, building airports. And some of these investments were productive, but as I say before, many of them uh, became uh, really, really uh, money-making projects. They, they, they became unprofitable on the whole, and that's what uh, in the first place started the, this idea of the BRI, which, as you say, it, it is really not a a very coordinated project, but uh, it's just the sum of all these different types of projects that exist overseas. Uh, 
So uh, I, I'm waiting to see uh, what is going to happen because those investments were uh, no longer being that productive in infrastructure within China. And that is usually the a typical reaction from, from governments, a Keynesian type of reaction. Let's build things and this will keep people working. Uh, people will have salaries that will consume, our economy will stay afloat. Uh, that was no longer working before uh, COVID and that's why you had the BRI. Is it going to go back there? Uh, and uh, it's a possibility because now you're going to, I mean, there's going to be globally a serious economic crisis. So maybe uh, it will be an option to, to look inwards uh, momentarily at, at the very least for, for the Chinese government. Uh, and in that sense, yes, it's, it's a possibility that, um, that um, you will see fewer loans to Caribbean countries uh, from the BRI and, and to, to other countries. That's very much a, a possibility. Uh, in, in a way, it, it could be, uh, maybe not, but, uh, but, but it, it could also be, if, if it's just for a year or, or two, it could be a good moment to reflect on lessons learned from our previous uh, Chinese loans to the region and what has been achieved uh, with them. And, and here it could be very important to see whether the type of infrastructural projects that have been developed have helped to increase the productivity of the local economy. So if you build a highway, is it helping to connect industries, people in a way that you boost economic activity? Or is it a highway that is going to uh, remain empty or have not much use? Uh, that on the, on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, uh, are these types of projects uh, disrupting the lives of people in any significant way or are they having a positive development impact and improving the lives of people beyond the generation of economic activity? Uh, it is important to reflect on, on all those, I think, looking forward. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, though, I would just point out for, you know, general listeners that there's too often this ease of discussion where people think of the Caribbean as one single entity, you know, one blob. The problem, of course, is that the Caribbean is very heterogeneous in how it operates in almost everything. So in terms of Chinese loans, for example, of course, Jamaica had a you know a substantial amount of loans, uh, imaginative or not. Uh, Dominican Republic has a fair amount of loans, but there are other countries like Barbados that have very little Chinese loans, and St. Lucia that have even less yet. So I think perhaps in taking a breath from, you know, all the loan talk from China, the Caribbean government should really think of a policy set where they, they may not even need to rely on uh, cheap Chinese loans in the future. But yeah, it, there's no there's no easy way I can see where this would be a, a non-issue in in the in the near future. On, so one on the side of think of kind of how you conceptualize the Caribbean in the discussion, and then in the Caribbean itself, how the government actually think about their, uh, you know, their own developmental agendas. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm grateful that you uh, that you emphasize the difference between different Caribbean countries. I'm, maybe speaking in uh, two general terms, but it is true that it's not exactly the same in, in every country. 
Um, unfortunately, uh, one of the things that we do as researchers, we, we tend to go to the places where all the projects are, so where the money is. So I, I go to Jamaica and I go to Trinidad to see all these different projects and I reach some conclusions about what's uh, going on. Uh, but Barbados could be, uh, I've been lucky enough to, to, to visit Barbados, but uh, I didn't spend there as, as much time because there's not much uh, uh, Chinese economic activity as compared to other countries. But now that, that could be interesting if, if that means, uh, and, and there's some indications of this, but you can correct me, but if, if, if that means that the, uh, the government there is being selective and just making sure to choose projects that really can add value, to, to, to the local economy without really having great environmental um, uh, issues <laughs> attached to them, uh, then that, that, that could indicate of a potential way of, of, of trying to engage China in a more productive way by being selective and making sure that each single project has something to add to, to your country, to your economy, to the people of the country. It doesn't need to be always the economy. Uh, but uh, it, it can be like if they build a hospital that you need a hospital, it may not have an economic value, but it will help to improve the lives of people. If that hospital has doctors, etc. If it's just the building, then <laughs> then no, not really. <laughs> uh, yeah, I exactly. And for my final question, uh, do you have any or what advice would you give to Caribbean governments in terms of how they should think about their future engagement with China. This last decade of engagement with China, uh, of Caribbean engagement with China, so sometimes a little bit of, of uh, over-excitement about those opportunities, to put it away, in a way. Uh, and uh, my advice, my humble advice, would be to take, take a step back and, and try to look forward, try to look beyond what's going to happen in the next year or two, in the next four years. If you are going to be investing 500 uh, US uh, dollar, sorry, 500 million US dollars in a project or, or even more, uh, that's something that the country is going to need to pay back over the years, whether it's in cash, whether it's because you have a 50-year concession for, for land, etc. Uh, so make sure you're adding value, make sure you're adding value, uh, make sure you're not disrupting in very significant ways communities or, or, or having a very negative impact on the environment because that, that's very difficult to undo. Uh, and uh, yeah, just uh, try to, to, to make sure that if, uh, if you're going to build a road, it, it has a meaning, uh, that if, if you're going to build a large building that it can really either add to, the, to your economy or, or help to improve the living standards of the people. Don't just go for the project because it's exciting and, and at, at the, in the short term it's also important to, to generate economic activity. Look a little bit um, beyond that. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ruben, for having this conversation. It was really, really fun. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And, and thanks again for having this podcast. It's, it's, it's helping me to learn even more about uh, the Caribbean and, and the relationship with China. <laughs>